This episode is one I would describe as revealing and soul grabbing. Before we begin though, I wanna share, this was recorded before Grammy winning gospel star Kirk Franklin was in the news after his adult son shared audio of an argument between the two of them on social media. Kirk has since posted a video apology. My two guests in this episode have reached the top of their respective careers. They've got a deep bond and a history because of the strength of their faith. NFL Hall of Famer, lifelong Baltimore Raven, Ray Lewis, one of the best defensive players to ever play the game, Super Bowl MVP, and gospel superstar Kirk Franklin, winner of 16 Grammys, the voice of healing and connection for so many people, especially, as Lewis points out, for athletes. This conversation was fun, deep, at times shocking, and strangely relatable. We began with where they were both joining me from. Where are you guys? Ray, are you at home? Kirk, it looks like you're in some studio somewhere. Well, it's because I'm working on that Ray Lewis album. You know, <laughs> I'm, uh, Ray's about to drop that mixtape. And so when we get off this interview, you know, we've got producers and musicians on deck because it's been time. I don't know if Ray told you, but, you know, uh, uh, Ray's got an album come out called Ray Ray Pray Pray. So, you know, it's about to hit. Yeah, <laughs> about to go all the way up the charts. Ray, Ray, Pray, Pray, volume one. <laughs> what the first single, what is it, Ray? Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay, man, you know Kurt, you know Kurt. No, but I'm sitting in my, I'm sitting in my home. I just, uh, I just bought a house, moved into my home. So um, I kind of made one of these rooms that I haven't made up yet, kind of my studio room as of right now. So that's what I'm doing, absolutely. I'm so excited to be on with my guy, though. I mean, I think people don't realize how far we go back. Yes, um, and, yes. And, and the things that, you know, we've shared and the, mm -hmm. the, the, the memories for me. Yes. Um, that, that, that we shared as brothers. And so it was exciting when I heard that I was going to be on him. I was like, yes, you sure you want an hour podcast or five hour <laughs> podcast? <laughs> we can make it an no. all nighter. That's cool. And I want you to know that my sentiments are the same about this guy, Lindsay. You know, I, I, is I'm not a big, big, like my IQ for sports is not very high. And so most of the people I meet is I meet them because of their faith. Yeah. Honestly, you know, like all of my professional athlete friends, I know them because along their journey, man, God was kind enough to let my music kind of be part of their, uh, their, just their tracking. And so I get a chance to meet these guys. And so when I, and so when I get to brag to my friends that it's like, I'm chilling with Ray Lewis or somebody, you know, everybody's <laughs> like, you lying, you lying. You don't know Ray Lewis. Why are you lying? You don't know Ray Lewis. And it's like, yo, man, he's the homie. And he's such a kind-spirited guy, such a genuine guy. And he's been so giving, man. He is the real deal. And I'm humbled that he wouldn't even, uh, even allow me to be a friend. Wow. Well, so how far back do you guys go? Gee, when, how long Two. has it been now, Kurt? Almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Almost wow. 20 years. Yeah, around about 2003 to 2002, 2003. Yeah. That's facts. That's facts. And we've always just, we've always been in each other's ear. And we always connected with each other. And then it was funny because, Kurt, I know you remember this, but in 2011, when you did the song, I Smile. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that song for me led me into going in after losing the AFC Championship. We then go back to the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and 
who was sitting in the front row was my good friend and his wife, Kurt Frankster, that I had yeah. to have at my last Super Bowl. And, uh, wow. and just sitting in there, and I'll never forget when I looked to the sideline and he knew I was going through it. And I looked at him and I said, no weapon, no, no weapon. weapon. <laughs> he sure did, he sure did. He what sure did that did. mean? What did that mean to you? Um, there's a scripture. Um, yeah. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall yes. prosper. But what was so funny yeah. is that when he turned around and said it to me, because again, I'm not a sports guy. I'm sitting around all these people that don't even know who I am. And they're like, is he talking to you? Yeah, and I'm like, I, and I'm like, I think so. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was hilarious and beautiful. So now, man. A man of faith is a man of vulnerability, right? Mm. Like, you got to be vulnerable with your faith, right? And your music has a way to make a man be okay with being vulnerable, wow. right? Wow. We're all strong. We're wow. big. You know, we lift weights. We punch people in the mouth. We do all of those kind of <laughs> things on a football field, right? But sometimes, Kirk, when I get home and I'm riding in my car, I don't listen to music often. But if I turn on certain music, I need the right music. And I'm just telling you, brother, like, your testimony, the things that you shared, the fights that you came through, the struggles that you overcame. Kirk, that's, that's what gives me the courage to keep going. We cannot pretend like we're perfect in this world. And you know this, Kurt, one of the things about a man, a man will go to his grave with some of his greatest pains. That's what, yeah, what Franklin, you just said that. You said, and especially you said a black man will go broken before he will right? Help himself work through the healing. I, I hope I'm not speaking out of school, right? No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. Finish, Lindsay. Because I caught when you said that and I was like, whoa, that is, you know, and if I'm, if I'm, I am being honest, I mean, I see that with, I told you a little bit about, you know, my husband and, and that was when your music really came into my life because he would listen to you all the time. And, and I realized for him, it takes him back to his childhood, you know, and it takes him back to feeling okay in the um, wow. in the warmth of what he was around, and and the other day we were sitting, at, we were pulling into a restaurant, and and something was on the radio, and someone was talking about how her son uh, had made it in the NFL, and I don't remember what player they were talking about, but she was like, "I'm so happy he's on this stage because of all he went through." And I looked over, and he's shedding a tear, and I was like, "What? Mm. What's going on?" And he said, "It's how I feel sometimes," and I'm like, "Well, holy." whatever because you know you don't share that right <laughs> yeah. it's like you realize yeah. anyway i love this conversation and i want to hear more of what you guys mean by that because i think a lot of people don't realize well Lindsay, you bring up you bring up a past right and you bring up pain right and me never hearing a father ever tell mm. me that he loves me same here same that's here bigger, that's bigger than you can ever imagine and same kurt here. will tell you this he will attest to this most of yeah. us don't make it out from that pain. Yeah, buddy. Most of us never yeah, recover from that. Yes. And so when you find a man that found himself on the other side, I tell people, it's one thing to understand my glory, but you must understand my story. Yeah, buddy. Because if they don't know your story, it's hard for people to relate to you. And that's yeah. why the connection with me and Kurt is so deep. I'm telling you, wow. we had wow. to meet. We had to meet because God said a long time ago, I got something that you, you going through something, he going through something. But mm. sooner or later, y'all going to find each other and going to realize why y'all had to endure it. And that's why we're here, I think. Yeah. 
And it's beautiful to be able to know that, that Lindsay, that's so many men of color that have never met, there's a uniformity in their brokenness, mm. you know? And, and I think that you can't overlook that or deny that, that when you, like you said, Miss Lindsay, when you see these young boys stand up there with, with they, with their mamas and they sign these contracts or they get these deals or they, you know, and, 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 and they're shedding tears is, is, is that their tears, unlike their white counterparts, their tears have different ingredients in them. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a different mixture mm. with every drop for these black and brown boys, but, but because black and brown, for, for a lot of their white counterparts, when they get up the field, the game ends. Yeah. For a lot of these black and brown brothers, the game keeps going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how so? Tell me more about that. Well, it's almost like, it's almost like I had an individual say to me the other day, and, and, and she said to me, as, as I asked her, what did she think of the Super Bowl? She's a Caucasian lady. And she said to me, she said, you know, is I really could have maybe done with a, without a lot of the celebration and the, the things that they did in, in memory and, and tribute to the COVID virus. And, and, and then, you know, it's, I could have done away with that. I could have done away with Black Lives Matter, you know, and I just want to watch the game. I just want to just watch the game. And I say, you know what? And I said to her something that I think Americans need to say more of. I said to her, and you have every right to feel that way. As an American, you have the right to feel the way you feel, just like those black boys on that field who's got cousins and aunties and uncles and homeboys that are getting killed, shot, and pulled over. They have the right to be able to not have to put their hearts on a hanger when they step on the field, they have the right to let you know what matters to them too. Y'all both have the same right. Now, the issue is, as Americans, how do we both ex uh, respect mm -hmm. and honor each other's rights and create a place of civility that we both can have our feelings? Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. And one of the reasons why is because a lot of us, the problems are never on the field. Mm. You actually run to the field or the court or the Ooh. basketball court to get away from your problems. Ooh. See, so a, a lot of times when somebody sees it from the outside, they're like, oh, I can do without that. Mm -hmm. But when you walk outside, Lindsay, you can't pull off your skin and turn into something else. We don't have that freedom. We don't, we have, don't have the freedom. We don't. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. We are. We are scrutinized. No matter how you cover it, no matter how you look at it, it yeah. is what it is, and yeah. that's why you have to be okay. And I'm let Kirk say the best. We have to be okay. And I say this all the time. This is where we have to go in 2021. You have to start meeting people exactly where they are. You can't yeah, talk buddy. over circumstances. You yeah. can't talk over yeah. what I've endured or what Kurt has endured as a black man every day. You can't talk yeah. about, you can't overlook what George Floyd and all these people, Breonna Taylor, all these people have been through. You can't overlook that. So meet them where they are, understand who you're dealing with, and understand why we see it the way we see it. Right? And everybody has an opinion to do it. Everybody Everyone. has an opinion to do it. But it's how you do it. And I'm telling yes. you, if, if, if we want, and Kirk knows this, if we want to get back 
to what life's supposed to be, we have to go back to something that's never changed. Godly principles don't change. His word does not change. I don't care about religion. Yeah, same, same here. Same here. Just love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. Right? It says yeah. power of life and death is found in the tongue. But we just so 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 that's the thing that I'm saying. Like for me, a football field was my sanctuary. It was my place that mm-hmm. <laughs> I can leave my problems for a minute and I can come do what I do. So look, I, I, I appreciate everybody's perspective, no matter what it is, but I totally agree with Kurt. I just think we have to we have to see eye to eye with each other. Yeah. So, come on, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by AutoZone. You're stuck for everything you need for oil changes and routine maintenance, which everybody should be doing. All right. So I loved hearing my guests today talk about their journeys. They both have had long celebrated careers. They've trained and improved their skills to get to the top. And they extended those careers by maintaining their health and their equipment. We know that that applies in life, but it also applies with your car. One of the most basic ways to maintain your vehicle is with regular oil changes, just like training core strength helps to maintain your heart, lungs, and muscles. Changing your oil regularly is critical to maintaining your engine. Oil is critical to engine performance. It keeps engine parts lubricated and protects against high heat. AutoZone really has everything you need for an oil change. They've got the oil, oil filters, pans, jacks, you name it. When you do the complete job, AutoZone has special savings. If you have any questions about making sure you do the job right, ask an AutoZoner or check the AutoZone blog at AutoZone.com slash DIY. Get in the zone, AutoZone. The connection y'all have too, like you said, about, about your childhoods. Take me back there a little bit. And what was each of your biggest challenges when you look back at that? I was adopted. I was adopted when I was four by mm-hmm. a 64-year-old woman that had a fourth grade education. And so... um I grew up with abandonment issues because uh, a lot of times when kids are adopted, uh, they are adopted through the systems where they don't really know their parents. So there is a scar there, but this new family, they take them in and they adopt them. A lot of times in the African-American communities, even though there's legal adoption, sometimes you may be adopted by like a distant relative or somebody that still knows your biological parent. So my biological mother, maybe once or twice a year, would still come through and visit. So she was kind of like a big sister that I would see maybe once or twice a year. She would come out with a new boyfriend or whatever. And what that does is that that creates even more abandonment because unlike and unlike normal adoption systems, you they never know their parents. So it's a scar that at least gets a chance to get a scav. But when you see your biological mama come in once or twice a year, it's a scab that never gets a chance to heal because every time she leaves, you want to know why you're not good enough to go with her. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened to me. And then my biological father showed up when I was six, got me a haircut, took, took me to his father's funeral. I didn't see him again. I didn't see him again until I had an album come out. And he came, he came backstage, wanted some backstage passes. That didn't go well. (laughs) That didn't go well for me. 
Uh, I didn't handle it like Jesus. I did not handle it like Jesus. <laughs> I ain't gonna wow. lie to you. I did not. I did not have a what would Jesus do bracelet on way one WWJD. It was like what would a Negro do, and so that's what I did. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. And so you know, I grew up with a lot of abandonment issues. I had a learning disorder, but back in the eighties, seventies, eighties, you just called dumb. You know what I mean? I had ADHD, and I found that out after one of my children got diagnosed. Um, oh, wow. So I, I I dropped out of high, high school when I was 17. I got a young lady pregnant. Um, and so the uh, lady that adopted me, uh, she would have the neighbors save their cans and newspapers, and she, we would recycle them every week to pay for my piano lessons. And so that's how I learned how to play the piano. We were on government cheese, government aid, food stamps, and all of that. The lady that adopted me died before she ever heard any of my music recorded. Whoa. So I, I lived so I live with a lot of, you know, guilt, kind of like a lot of survivor's guilt. I have a sister, half sister that was in and out of prison. Um, my sister's still in and out of prison. She's one year younger than me. She has a crack cocaine addiction. And so um, we're still dealing with that tension and trauma right now as a family. So this is what I live through even today is I live and I walk through that pain. I live with a limp and that limp mm -hmm. has kept me more dependent on my faith. So how, how did you get to the point where you wanted to make the music about it? I, I heard the story about how you said you were on, mm -hmm. you climbed up to your roof and you would talk to God, right? When you were like seven years yeah. old. And I thought, wow. Yeah. And that made me wonder, what were you saying? You know, what were you saying to him at that time? And how yeah. did that turn into your music? Well, you know, that, that first of all, thank you for that. that question kind of makes it makes me all warm inside because I remember having this really kind of best friend relationship with God when I was a kid because I didn't I didn't have siblings. I, I wasn't raised. It was me and this older lady in the house by myself and the neighborhood was 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 uh, uh, full of older individuals. And so there were no kids when a lot of, you know, things. And so kind of like God became like my friend. He was my invisible friend. And I would look in the stars and talk to him and so and then these ideas these song ideas would come and so and so that's how it started for me as a little kid I started remixing you know uh old old like R&B songs like Benny and the Jets I would remix <laughs> it as a little kid you know and and so that's been the story of my life kind of and Ray in your world what was going on so even though I can change a few pieces here and there right but this is a common theme in the black community right, of, yeah. of brokenness, right, of, of the identity crisis, right? And we're talking about generational curses, right? So a lot of things that we have to endure, our great, great, great grandfather never fixed. The hardest thing for me was I was always looking for what my true identity was, right? Okay. And so when people finally read my book for the first time, they was like, wait a minute, what do you mean your name ain't Ray Lewis, right? Like my mom had me at 15 years old. And my mom needed somebody to come sign as my father. But my father left. And I didn't have a name to be put in. Mm -hmm. So my mother called a friend of the family who was in the military, whose name was Ray Lewis. Wow. And would you do me a favor? Would you come sign as my son's father? Wow. So Ray Lewis wow. came and signed as my father. So my name is Ray Lewis, which is another man's name. And I finally met that man in 11th grade and I shook his hand and I said, thank you. And I promise to make your name great. Ooh. Oh, so I, wow. Yeah, I still live in that crisis, right? And so when me and my father 
had the first, similar to Kurt, when we had our first real conversation to where we actually took a ride, I was in my 30s. Wow. Mm. And, and he asked me to drive from North Carolina, from Charlotte to another small part of North of Carolina. And I, I didn't say nothing, Kurt, for three and a half hours. I sat yes. in the car and kept my mouth closed the entire time, Lindsay. I'm telling you, I did not say a word. Why? Why? I was so mad. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm like, where you been all these years? Like, how could you do that? Right. And so I didn't want to say it because I was going to lose my mind. So I sat there and he talked for three hours. And when we pulled up to this old greenhouse, it was actually my grandfather who I had never met or even known. Him and his father started talking. He asked his father, why did you leave me? And why did you? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why did he leave you? And I realized that that it was a generational curse thing that was going on. Yeah. And I never forget it. When we when we left, I said, this curse, this curse stops with me. I never had a man tell me he loves me. Mm -hmm. Never. Mm -hmm. So at 14 years old, when mm -hmm. I fell in love with God, I fell in love with a concept of what mm -hmm. love feels like if I chase sunsets. <laughs> wow. And I'm sitting outside at 14 years old, and me and my best friend Kwame, we're broke. We have nothing. And I'm like, can I wear your pair of jeans, brother? I don't have no other clothes. My mom had to give me away a few times. And like Kurt, I had an issue. I had a stuttering problem. So I had mm -hmm. a lot of little issues going on when I was you younger. Ask, you know, bully. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, yeah. Lizzie, I'm telling you, like. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Right. And by the way, Melvin has just popped in because he was he wanted to see how well, I, I mean, I like I love bro. I like Ray, but you know I love Kirk. <laughs> yes. I just, I, I just wanted to see him. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, good to see you. Right, but keep going. So you had the stutter, and then yeah, and I, and I had the stutter because you know I had a um, I had a very mean stepfather. He had just got done physically abusing my mom, and uh, and I was just crying, and uh, I was looking out of the window. And he took a uh, he took an earthworm, like a snake about that big, and he tossed it on my lap, and I couldn't and I couldn't speak, so I was like, and I was stuck, and I Jeez. and I stuttered ever since then. So I actually I actually self taught myself actually how to speak, and then me and Sunsets to just to bring an end to it. Um, we were sitting outside, me and my best friend, and I said, bro, I don't have no money. I'm broke. I'm hungry. Bro, we got to figure out a way to get out of here. And uh, and I'll never forget the sunset was going down. It always sat right in front of my grandmother's house. Wow. And I said, I know one prayer, and I know our father's prayer. And I said, every sunset that I ever see, I'm going to recite our father's prayer until the Lord bring me out of this. And I'm 45 years old, and I still Ooh. chase sunsets and reciting our father's prayer to find my way out of that. Yeah, and now me and my father, yeah. we're we're okay, we're yeah. okay. But I called him last year, and I ended with this. I called him last year, and I said, "I said, Dad, I'm your first child. All I want you to tell me, tell me happy birthday, man. That's it. I don't need nothing. I just want you to tell me happy birthday. And I'm telling you, Lindsay, it's a, it's a lot of young black men, right? Gang life starts in Baltimore at nine years old." They're broken. They're broken. And if they don't turn towards God, the, the next thing that grabs them, grab them is drugs, the gangs, 
street hustling and everything that Kurt talking about. And that's why I saw so much of it. I ran the opposite way of it. That's why it's so important that we've got to change also this narrative of 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 this introduction of God that we have done in in our Western society because we have used it as a weapon. We mm-hmm. have used it in an uh in, in an authoritarian uh, uh tool to be able to control instead of it being a gift of love and grace. One of the biggest things that I know that we're gonna to need to start doing to start reaching the next generation is that we've got to be able to uh, tear down this idea of this elitism that a lot of times Christians have communicated to, to other individuals. It's almost like as Christians, we. We speak to people like we are the doctors and they're the patients and we've got the medicine and we're here to help you because you need our help versus versus the posture of every Christian should be my hospital bed is next next to to yours. yours. (laughs) It's right next to yours. And let me tell let me tell you what the doctor did for me. Let me tell you what the doctor did for me, because that is going to be the way that we reach people. This elitist approach that we've been doing in America, that time is over. Mm. That season is over. And now we've got the difficult job of rebuilding trust. And it's going to have to come through patience, grace, and, and transparency. And what Ray said, meeting people where they are. Meeting them where they are. You said God never intended religion to be you know, how we know him. And I, I thought that was yes. awesome because, and I'm yeah. going to say this since you're here, Melvin, mm-hmm. but um, going to to church with Melvin is 100% different than going to my church. She I grew up Catholic. <laughs> Catholic Kirk. Right, but yeah. there was no Kirk Franklin in the family. Right, so, <laughs> so listen, like I go, to, I go to church there for the first time when we're dating and I'm like, and then we go to funerals together and I'm like, I want to stand up Ooh. and sing, right? And this is like it was a it was a total. There's nothing like a black funeral. N- nothing no. like a black funeral. Nothing. Nothing like a black funeral. And let me tell you why no. that is. In the African American community, uh, a black funeral was was normally the only time that that person was somebody. Absolutely. Wow. That was the only time that that person yeah. mattered. Yeah. And so that was the one time that the community. The 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 church, that person's job, everybody stopped for a minute and allowed that person to matter. That's yeah. why black funerals are so celebratory. That's why that's why there's so much pomp and circumstance in a black funeral, because historically it was the only time that that individual had value. Kirk, this may sound like I'm I'm not trying to take over my wife. No, no, you're fine. But Kirk, like black funeral songs, like what's what's your go-to? Like if 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 someone says, I want Kirk Franklin to sing at my funeral, what does Kirk Franklin sing? That's a great question. My life is in your hands. Mm-hmm. As I do a song that I wrote years ago called My Life is in It, it says, you don't have to worry mm-hmm. and don't you be afraid. Joy comes in the morning. Troubles, Troubles they don't last, last always. always. For there's a friend named Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hands and say, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand. No matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. Shh. I'm, go- um, I'm going downstairs to put the kids in the bathtub. You- <laughs> I just wanted to say hello. 
Ray, good to see you, brother. Kirk, good to see you again. Second time in two weeks. I love Thank you. Thank you. I know it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Wow, this is great. Ray, I know that you used to work out with a deck of cards. I've heard that story about every number that you would turn over, you would do that number of push-ups. But how was it that you came to end up wearing the number 52 in football? My last year of high school, I didn't have a scholarship. And long story short, um, the University of Miami saw me play my last high school game against the number one recruit in the nation at the time, which was Jamie German, who played for Fort Myers. So, Kurt, we ended up playing them in my hometown in Lakeland. And uh, I had just I had just the most amazing game ever. And had but, you been getting like any any sniffs before about no, from schools? No, okay. because I was because I was a wrestler. Right. So I wrestled and uh, and my weight wasn't I wasn't 230. I wasn't 240. I was like right at about 185. Right. But everybody that I played against, honestly, you look at any record, pull up any tape. I outplayed every one of those guys that they put ahead of me. But it was like, oh, he's just 6'1", 6'2", he's about 180 pounds, 190 pounds. He's not big enough. And they saw me play that last game. I had a stupid game. We ended up losing. I'm on my knees and I'm looking up to God and I'll never forget it. I think this guy got this picture of it and I'm looking up to God and I was like, what's next? Like, mm. I, I gave everything. I did exactly what you told me to do. Like, I, I, I tried everything. And uh, a couple of weeks went by. Three days before signing day, the University of Miami called. And somebody mm. pulled out their knee riding a four-wheeler. And the last scholarship was given to me. And they called me and they said, you got three days to get, at, to get into Miami, to get your butt in Miami. And I called my mother, who was living in Tennessee um, at the time, because I had to stay with some other people because we didn't have financials. And I said, Mama, I made it to college. I made it to college. She said, congratulations. She said, take care of yourself. I, I try to get down there and see if I can. I said, Mama, don't worry. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And um, and then she, uh, stay with Oof. it, stay with it. And then she said, uh, she said, <clears throat> I said, Ma, I need some money. And she said, I don't have much money. She said, I got $20 worth of food stamps. She said, I got $20 worth of food stamps that I can send you. And I said, I'll make it. I said, just send me the $20. She sent me the $20 worth of food stamps. And I, dro I was dropped off to college at the University of Miami. And I had one pair of jeans. I had three white t-shirts. I had a pack of number two pencils and I had a pack of paper and that's it. And I said, I'll make it. And I walked in the office and Randy Shannon mm. was standing in the back of the locker. I was like, I want number this and one that. He was like, you're not even in the media guy. Pete Garcia was our AD at the time. He was like, you signed so late, Ray, you're not going to be in the media guy. People won't know who you are. So I was like, I'm fine with that. It don't matter. And, um, Randy Shannon said, well, I usually give my linebackers certain numbers. And the University of Miami is known for, known for linebacker you, yeah. right? And the numbers started going down, going down. I have no numbers. And I looked back and I was like, who has that number? Who has number 52? He was like, nobody's wore that number. I was like, really? I was like, I want 52. He was like, you want 52? Why do you want 52? I said, well, that's because that's God's number. 
He was like, God's number. I said, yeah. I said, five and two is completion. That's seven. Uh, <laughs> I wow. said, and I said, that's Whoa. my number. And the wow. first day I put that number on, I'm telling you, Lindsay, the first day, and you got to think about the relevance, right? Of yeah. a deck of cards, what I started with at 10 years old, to my jersey number being 52, and then going off and do what I did all the way through college and my entire career. And that's why I tell people when God promises something, you better hold on to the promise because he's not going to lie to you. Well, I, mean, I spoke to about 30, 45 athletes last night, Kurt. And something I told them, I said, you know, every person in this room only has a true belief in one thing. And that's your talent. That's it. Mm. That's all you trust right now. But I'm going to challenge you tonight to find a better you. Mm. Find what the relationship mm. that you and God are supposed to have one-on-one. Because when your talent runs out, the only thing that won't make you go crazy is your faith. Yeah, buddy. The 1%, the difference, because only 1% makes it. The difference of the 1% is one decision. You get a better football player if you get a better man. <laughs> so anyway, I ended up fighting my own fight and, and, and my fight separated me from a lot of my friends, which is what I told the guys last night, right? A lot of my friends, I, I don't have, I couldn't go to the same place they wanted me to go again. I gave up a lot in my life very early at 24 years old, right? I didn't go to clubs. I stopped drinking brown liquor. I don't go to strip joints. I don't do none of that. Yeah. 24 years old, I'm done because I, I know where I'm trying to go. I know where my vision, I don't wrote my vision. I don't saw it too many times. And I told him the two things that you better be careful with and understand in this life is detours and distractions because one of them will kill you. That is good. Kirk, did you, was, is there a moment for you that is similar to, to Ray describing the, his Miami situation? You know, man, is I've had quite a few, man. I, I, um, I used to keep a trash bag at the church I was playing for, and I would go into the bathroom and wash up and change into my church, you know, clothes to pay on Sunday, and you know, because I was sleeping in my car or whatever. And I think that really believing that I could really be something, like I say all the time, the dreaming was a luxury that I couldn't afford, really, for me, because, you know. And then, you know, something like sports, when you're good at sports like, like, like Ray probably was, there was a you were on the radar, at least in some people's lives. You know, if you weren't good in high school, you know, you know, somebody was writing about you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, but like in my world, you can be obsolete for so long. And it's just one song or one concert or one performance that changes the trajectory. But you can go unknown mm. for, so, for so many years. So you don't really see hope. You don't really see possibility. And I think that the thing that really changed my life, I think, is how people responded to my music and how the first album really just caught on fire so quick and, mm-hmm. and, and how it got so many people's attention because is I'm not a like great singer and I do music. And so it was weird. It's like, you know, how are people enjoying my music and I don't sing, you know? I mean, God's giving me these songs. I'm writing these songs. I'm teaching these songs to the singers. They sing, I'll talk over the song. I'll kind of narrate the song and people start liking this. And it's like, this don't make no sense. This don't make no sense that people would like this. And so, you know, like every song, every record, God was just on it. It's like, 
you know, and I think that to see that for me, it's such a prime example that God does use the foolish things yes. to confound mm-hmm. the wise, because that don't make no sense for a Negro that can't sing <laughs> to do <laughs> albums. It don't make no sense, you know? No, that's not but accurate. that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what else I was, one of the connection things I was looking and I'm like, oh, 1996. Interesting, because obviously that's the year that Ray was drafted. That's the year that you won your first Grammy, right, Kirk? Mm, what do wow. you guys remember most about that year and that time in your lives? Uh, you know, it's when I won my first Grammy, I was in bed. I was in bed at home. I was scared to go. I, I was scared to go. Yeah, I was scared to go because I was afraid of losing. I didn't know if I could be comfortable winning because unfortunately, one thing about religion or sometimes the community that you live in, you know, there's this thing, there's this thing that can be this pseudo spirituality, but it's really a tool of oppression. It's, it's a tool of control where this thing, stay humble. Don't you get caught up in all that worldly stuff. You know what I mean? We don't need that stuff to let us know that we're doing God's work. And sometimes, you know, as a, I'm, at, you know, 96, I'm 26 years old, you know? And so as a kid that is being uh, pushed into these non-Christian worlds, it was very difficult to know what was acceptable and what wasn't. So I stayed at home. I dealt with my own anxiety of, you know, I don't want to get caught up in it, but it would be nice to go, you know, like I think that, yeah, you know, that I do think that there's a dichotomy that culture and Christianity can sometimes play with each other because a lot of the doctrine and a lot of the interpretations of what we think is holy and sacred, Mm -hmm. a lot of times those are our own biases. They're our own biases. Those are people that because they're not doing it, they're going to use a scripture to oppress you because they don't want to see you having fun either. And that's what happens a lot of times in westernized religion is that a lot of people themselves are not happy. And so they'll throw dogma on somebody else because they don't want you to enjoy your ride either. They're not enjoying their ride, so they don't want you to enjoy your ride. So my first Grammy, I was at home in my drawers, in my bed. Wow. Did it feel exciting? I felt uncomfortable to be excited because I was, I remember being on tour with some other gospel artists and I remember the fear of, well, you know, are people going to think I'm, you know, you know, people going to think I'm thinking I'm all that, you know? So I really oppressed it. I really was like, you know, man, that don't matter, man. You know what, you know, like, like I found myself feeling uncomfortable for winning because I did not want to look like I was changing. Mm-hmm all of that emotional trauma there. That's why yeah. I'm still in therapy. Like I was just in therapy yesterday. Like I go see my therapist again, but th- th- through this pandemic, this pandemic had me going back to therapy because I just really need, like I've always been an advocate for uh, therapy for black men going to therapy. I've been going uh, to therapy off and on for 20, almost 30 years. And it's been a blessing in my life because I think that a lot of people of faith, they look down on, the tools that can also be implemented with your faith because we're mind, body, and soul. And yes. so uh, that has helped me a lot. Yeah. yeah. Therapy, I think, is huge for all of us. I mean, I think this time for me, too, being with my kids like so much has sort of created mm-hmm. this. It creates this thing where all of a sudden you kind of don't, you just get in this cocoon, you know? So, like, Ray, right, when right. you're talking about your mom living somewhere else, I know that's your truth. 
And for me to think about that, I'm like, that makes me physically nauseous, you know, to think about what she must have been feeling also. And I know that it's, it's what you do and it's what you have to do. But I think that's so it's just so eye opening also to hear people's perspectives about that, because it makes me feel like Pollyanna, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Lindsay. Where I was from, what was interesting was when I got to 90, 94, 95, 96, you know, I was young, you know, uh, like Kirk, I became, I came, I became a father. Uh, my first mm-hmm. child was born in 1995, you know, Ray, Ray okay. III. And, uh, and not that I needed any more extra mo- <laughs> added motivation, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that, that summer, 95, going into 96, I moved my mom with me in college. My mom, okay. my three sisters, and my brother. And I moved everybody with me in college, right? Jeez. And we ain't got to get into logistics how I survived, but. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah, I there are questions I... there. <laughs> yeah, but I go. Uh... She had, she had finally hit, um, she had came back from Tennessee and she had finally hit rock bottom. And uh, and I was just like, look, mom, all I can do is have y'all come stay with me. So anyway, she piled up everybody and they came and stayed with me. And then I looked at her in the 95. I said, mom, I'm about to do something that I know you're not going to agree with, but I got to do this because we're in a, we're in a position as a family where we're not going to survive. I said, you trust me? And she said, Junior, you're not leaving school. I said, Ma, I have to leave school. There's no way. I can't pay bills like this. I can't afford everybody in the house. And she was like, and I'll never forget. She was like, my mom's a pastor. Um, and so she was like, look, I'm going I'm to pray on this, and I'm going to give you my answer. Kirk, she come back the next day, and you know, you know a black mama. It ain't happening. <laughs> I was wow. like, I was like, mom, wow. I was like, listen, we have no other choice, right? And it was like the first time I was like, mom, you have to listen to me one time. We have no other choice. <laughs> she was like, well, I don't understand this football world and I don't know what you're going through. And she says, okay, if you do it, you owe me one thing. And I said, what's that? She said, you will, you promise me that you'll go back and get your degree. And I said, mom, I promise you, I'll go back and get my degree. So 1995, I was like, I went to the head coach and I was like, I'm out. He was like, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. I was like, I'm going to trust that mistake. I'm going to trust that mistake because I got to take this chance. And so, yeah, I came out in 96 and, uh, you know, room was, oh, he's this, he's that. And then I ended up going first round to the Ravens. And wow, yeah, and honestly, like, I look back at my mom to this day. And I left in 96, and in 2004, she didn't even know it. I was back in school at UMBC, um, wow. University of Maryland. And I went I went, back, went back and got my degree. And I walked in the house, Beautiful. she was sitting on the couch, and I handed her my, I handed her my diploma in business administration. Yeah. And uh, what did she wow. say? Oh, she, after she cried for about three, four hours. <laughs> she, you know, because she didn't know that she didn't know what I was doing, but I, I had promised her, you know, because you know, she always said that athletics only goes so far. You know, it takes a, a true man of wisdom, you know, really takes his time to accomplish a lot of great things outside of our athletics. And uh, that was one of the biggest things in our household um, that my mom, you know, really enforced. Yeah. 
That's beautiful. You both are dads and Kirk, how has, how has that shaped you? Not having one, like what, what has that shown you about maybe what you missed and also what kind of father does that shape you to really want to be? I think that, that, that trauma can make people either bitter or better. That's it. That's it. And so it can make a person, uh, it can make you uber engaged or uber disconnected. And so for me, it made me go zero to a hundred to want to be a parent, especially when I got married, because when I got married, my, my wife had a little girl. And so I adopted my, my uh, wife's little girl. I um, went to her biological father who was not consistent. And I told him, I said, look, bro, I want to legally adopt um, Carrington. And I, w and I was consistent. I wanted to make sure that's what she wanted. She told him that's what she wanted. And so that just, that just made me want to just step up. It's like being a father. It was something that I knew I couldn't fail at. So I, so I went ham, like I went zero to a hundred with all four of my kids, all four of my kids. I like, I just flew to Atlanta uh, about a month or so ago for my 23 year old daughter. She's in grad school there just to take on a date. As I just want to just take on a date, but you know, wow. as I just want her to keep seeing what a man looks like. You know, let me open up the door. Yeah. As I brought her flowers, I did this, and you know, as I just wanted to continue to see what it looks like. This is what you deserve. This is what you look. Uh, about three and a half years ago, I got a random call on one of my phones from uh, uh, my biological father's uh, divorced wife, uh, his okay. ex-wife, I say. Um, and she contacted me. I don't know how she got my number. She said, I want to let you know. And she said, I know you don't know your father and you've never, he's never been in your life. Well, I want to let you know that he's dying. Oh. And so just one, so I'm reaching out to all of his kids to let them know. If I knew the Christ-like thing to do was to get on a plane and I uh, took one of my good homeboys with me because yeah. I was scared to go by myself. I was just scared to go, you know, just alone. And I uh, got his address and uh, he, uh, right, he's living in the projects. You know, living in projects, you know, little one raggedy mm -hmm. one, one bedroom, I think one bedroom um, apartment. And I'm looking at my father who interestingly is tall. I'm five, four. <laughs> uh, and this man and this man has got to be six feet. Don't know what happened. God is funny. Whole nother conversation. We'll talk later. Don't laugh now. Put it on timeout. Don't say nothing. I feel insecure. You're laughing already. Sorry. I'm going to keep going. Next statement. <laughs> and so I uh, looked at him and I said to him, I said, as I've been told that I have a couple of awards, I've been told that I've, I have a couple of accomplishments and I've done a few things, but because you were not in my life, Every room I walk in, I'm the most insecure man in the room because I did not have you to tell me that I mattered. Mm. And he gave me what he had, Lindsay. All he had was, I can see what you're saying. That was it. Wow. That's all he had to give me. Now, I'm dramatic, so I was looking for like this this is us moment where he grabbed right. my head and he, and he puts my yeah. forehead on mine yeah. and goes, my son, forgive me. Please have mercy on me, my child. And we snot and we you know, drop some boogers and tears and, and we <laughs> right. hold each other. That's not what I got. 
And I had to realize that that man gave me the best he had. And I had to take that. I had to take that and I had to let him go. Wow, that is powerful. And you had to rely on you, right? I mean. Once again, mm -hmm. once again. Yes. Once again. You've had massive success. You have also gotten through tribulations, right? That, um, Kirk, you talked about addiction that you battled. Yes, yes. Maybe, Ray, you would think the same with what you went through with the Atlanta scenario. And I just, I, I am curious how you guys grew from those experiences and how you, experiences and how you got through it. God doesn't take you nowhere and leave you. He only tells you that he don't dwell in unclean places. So in the midst of mine, my num one of the number one lessons that I learned throughout life, seriously, and I just told my daughter this today, this was, was so interesting. My daughter, 23 years old, just graduated from Alabama. And she was like, dad, I just, I just made a huge mistake. I, I let somebody hold mom's car and, and, and she got in a wreck in the car. And I said, baby, you know what? You got a heart just like your father. And I said, I had to learn this the hard way. You better be okay with saying no way more than you say yes. I didn't appreciate that when I was younger because I wasn't, not necessarily who I was hanging with was bad people, but they just wasn't headed where I was headed. And that alone is what I was telling my daughter today, to today. Baby, you got to know what's at risk in mm -hmm. your life. Every time you give somebody something or somebody asks you for something. And the day that we're able, and this is why me and my daughter are so close. She was like, Dad, I'm coming down and, and let's get together because her, exactly what you do. I started a long time ago taking my daughters on dates. Yeah, buddy. I said, let me tell yeah, you buddy. something. Man ain't opening the door for you. Nah. You better turn around and go the other way. If a man ain't yeah. waiting till you sit down before he sit his butt down, you better find yourself going the other way. And that's why I think today is why I live the way I live, because I saw the dysfunction of it. I saw the generational curses of it. And I also saw the temptations of it. So now you got to ask yourself a question with all of that data. What's your next move? I chose God. I chose God. Mm. God. Mm. Mm. And for me, um, you know, it, 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 it is very true that that when I was young, as I got introduced to a lot of uh, very unhealthy things as a kid, there was, uh, as I was raised in a family where there was incest and and uh, I was very promiscuous as a young boy, trying to find love from mama, uh, got introduced to pornography as, as a young boy, you know, cause all it takes is that one uncle they got that magazine up on this bed, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, you know, that 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 Uncle Trey Trey, uh Pookie or whatever, you know. And so yeah. and then and then what happens is as a broken, lonely kid, these things become your blankets. These things become your only friends or your only understanding of what love and relationship is, not understanding that what it's all teaching you is that it's teaching you to be a selfish lover by the time you grow up and find a woman that you really love. And so for me, my faith never allowed me to ever be comfortable in those things. These were not these were not lifestyles, you know, you know, being promiscuous and and breaking girls' hearts and you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and so by God's grace, you know, my life has changed and and I'm truly grateful that I can pass those lessons on to my sons. 
All right, we're going to do some some X's and O's here, guys, some rapid-fire questions. As long as it's not about sports, I know nothing about sports. <laughs> we got your back, Kirk. Ray, tough, toughest physical challenge during your career? Toughest Ooh. physical challenge of my career? Well, probably uh, 2005 when I uh, tore my uh, hamstring from the bone. Oh, that was probably one of the most difficult times of my career. And it made you wonder a lot because when you tear your hamstring, you realize that you cannot function at all. Using the bathroom is absolutely impossible. Excuse my openness. Wow. It's impossible. Wow. It's just impossible. And so you, oh my gosh, that was, that was probably my hardest one. Um, my hamstring. Oh. I know. And that takes a long time to get over, right? Doesn't it? To rehab. Oh, gee whiz. Um, it took me probably about seven, eight months to, to actually get back to when I was comfortable. Yeah. Franklin, toughest concert to get through or performance, toughest performance that you've had? See, <laughs> the toughest performance that I've had would probably be a performance where me and my wife may have had a big fight and I got to jump <laughs> on stage and kind of act like everything's Gucci when I know enough. Yeah, yeah. That has been the toughest performance. I have held up performances because me and Tammy, and this is early on our marriage when we were, you know, still little kids. And it was really me. It's really me more the fool because my Tammy, uh, yeah, my Tammy, she's very much a peaceful lady. So it was really me. But but, but I would hold up concerts. Like, no, we're going to get this right now before I go out there. I'm not going to be out there doing like that. You're going to talk to me. You're going to talk to me, you know? And so that's what it was. Well, what were you arguing about? Just oh, man, I was so ignorant back then. It could have been anything. I could have been jealous. I could have been jealous and maybe the way some guy looked at it. I don't know. It could have been anything. Just stupid because my wife is an extremely, extremely beautiful woman. And so, you know, just, just silly, stupid. See, that's so funny because I spent a long time when we were first married being like, we cannot go to bed mad. And Melvin would be like, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, come on, man. And it did not matter. Um, Hilarious. All right. Your dream side career. Ray, what's yours? My dream side career? You know what his is. I love you so much, brother. I love you. Call me. This conversation was really important to me. And the the fact that these two men were able to connect over such personal stories has really stuck with me. The episode really struck me for different reasons, but there were a couple I wanted to highlight. Ray Lewis talking about African-American men in the NFL still having to fight when they get off the field. That is something that has gnawed at me since I had that conversation. Because when I first covered sports, when I started covering sports in 2004 in Miami, the very first time I was in a locker room, that was really the first time that I was introduced to that reality of extreme 
culture differences. Um, it's not something that I was proud of because it seems super naive, right? But it's it's not something you pick up necessarily because the appearance of NFL players, you see them in their uniforms, you see them sometimes with the perception of a lot of wealth. Um, but the stories of the background of these players and things that they have shared with me over the years, that's a huge part of what drives me in journalism. It's the storytelling, the backstories that no one sees. Um, that's part of what really speaks to me and wants me to put those stories in the forefront. Sometimes it's because they're relatable. Sometimes it's the complete opposite. I remember feeling so naive hearing the story of one particular player, Santana Moss, talking to me about how he grew up in this extremely rough part of Miami. And it floored me to hear the things that he saw as a young man. Uh, the other thing that struck me from Kirk and Ray in this conversation, you heard us talk about it a little bit, but, you know, I married an African-American man, obviously, when we were talking about church and about not understanding that something that was not even a thing in my life, um, like not feeling, you know, not understanding how the chi chips could really be stacked against someone because of the color of their skin. Um, I didn't know the weight and the reality of that until I was married and was exposed to the amazing family that I now married into and was able to really have vulnerable, open conversations about what I did not know with my mother-in-law, you know, and with people in the family. And, you know, I, it's taught me that I want to understand more about it. Uh, I want like Ray and Kirk say to know that these conversations are what help spark the change. So there's so much that these two men share that, that I thought was fascinating and entertaining. But the biggest thing I take away is how we can all do better. And I'm just grateful for these two men for opening up this conversation.